Well, let's take our Bibles. Would you take the Word of God and turn to the book of Acts and chapter 14? In Acts chapter 14, as we uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, we find ourselves here in the midst of uh, the first missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts. We often say Paul's first missionary journey, but the truth is there was much more people there than just Paul. We know Paul and Barnabas. We know John Mark was there in the first journey, although he left in the midst. But there was other people that were there, perhaps Luke as well. The one who uh, penned the words of Acts was there with, uh, with uh, Paul and Barnabas as well. But let me review here as we find ourselves in Acts chapter 14. If you remember Paul on his missionary journey, he left from Antioch of Syria. He sailed to the island of Cyprus. Uh, went to two cities there from the island, then he sailed northward to what we refer to as Asia Minor, but it's the area of Pisidia and Pamphylia. He came to the city of Perga. From Perga then, he took a hike up to Antioch um, of Pisidia. Okay, so Asia Minor, different from the Antioch in Syria. And then, if you remember in Antioch, he preached, the synagogue, uh, he preached the gospel in the synagogue, and he v- eventually was expelled out of the city of Antioch. Uh, then, from Antioch, he went to Iconium. When he went to Iconium, he preached in the synagogue there, and he, remember, was nearly stoned. Uh, there was a conspiracy to stone him, and when they were aware of that, they left, and then they went eastward to Lystra. And that's where we last spent our time in Acts chapter 14. Now, if you remember, Paul preached the gospel and he healed the impotent man who was impotent from birth. The people of the city were quick to proclaim both uh, Paul and Barnabas as deities. Uh, One Jupiter and one Mercurius, and these were Greek gods. And so they were about to offer a sacrifice because of what Paul and Barnabas had done. And when Paul heard of that, he uh, swiftly confronted them and encouraged them to turn from those vanities, which were the false gods, to turn to the living God. And we left that narrative there in Acts chapter 14. And we now come to Acts chapter 14, verse 19. So the last thing we just read was that Paul try to stop them from offering a sacrifice because he said, we're men just like you. Me and Barnabas, we're just like you. And so he had just told them to turn from bandage to the living God. And so verse 19, they're still in Lystra, but notice what happens. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now remember, Antioch, he was expelled from the city. and Iconium, there was a conspiracy to stone him, so he left. Those Jews who expelled him from Antioch and who wanted to stone him in Iconium, they come now to Lystra. Uh, Notice, who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, so Paul is stoned, drew him out of the city supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. That's the city, by the way, that stoned him. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, 
they return again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Now, I know we're just reading the Bible, but think about what just happened. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra, stirred up the people, stoned Paul, he was left for dead. He went back to the city, then went to Derbe, preached the gospel there, and went back to Lystra where he was stoned to death, went back to Iconium from where the Jews came to stone him to death, and then went back to Antioch where the Jews had traveled to Lystra to stone him to death. So we read in verse 22, as he passes back through those cities of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, what did he do? Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Now after this, we're not going to read the rest of the chapter. We'll keep that for next week. For the remainder of the chapter, they're going to basically go home from there and go back to Antioch of Syria where they were sent out of. But I would like to bring your attention to verse 23. The beginning of the passage we just read, in verse 19, Paul is stoned to death. And here as he go, passes through all those cities that had been the source of Paul's stoning, he does something, the Bible says at the end of verse 20, 23, they, Paul and Barnabas, commended them to the Lord. Commended them. I'll talk about this in just a moment, but in the midst of all of this, Paul basically gives the believers over, those churches that have been established over, he's leaving, he gives them over to God, commends them to God, praying, saying, basically the idea of commending is, God, would you take care of them? Would you take care of those churches? Would you take care of those believers? And so as the narrative continues in Lystra, after the scene here, the study finishes here in Lystra, but then we have a summary statement as to remember in Early on in Acts chapter 13, while Paul and Barnabas were serving in the church of Antioch, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. By the end of chapter 13, the Bible, uh, 14, the Bible says that they fulfilled the work that the Holy Ghost called them to do. Notice Acts 14 verse 26 they sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Now let's pause for just a moment and ask ourselves, did everybody get saved? No. As a matter of fact, we could say the majority of the people did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they had the city in an uproar. They stoned Paul, left him for dead. But yet they come back at the end of chapter 14, they come back to Antioch of Syria, they give a report of all that God had done, and God says, it's not Paul and Barnabas, God says they fulfilled the work. So we have to ask ourselves the question today, first of all, do we understand God's work? And number two, do we want to fulfill God's work? Those are important questions. I hope that as a church we come 
We have a desire to say, first of all, we want to know what God's work is, and then we want to fulfill God's work. Now, there is a summary statement from uh, verse 20 through verse 23 as to what that work is. In other words, early on, if you remember in Acts 13, when the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them, that work is not explained initially. But as we read Acts chapter 13 and 14, we read what that work was, and at the conclusion, God says they fulfilled the work. So we assume that if God says that they fulfilled the work, that Paul and Barnabas did exactly what God wanted them to do. So let's see what they did. And we have to make sure as a church today in the 21st century that do, we do exactly what this work was so that we also can have God look down upon First Day Baptist Church and say, they fulfilled the work that I gave them to do. Now remember here, the summary statement is, the narrative is, they went to Antioch, they were expelled. They went to Iconium, they tried to stone Paul and Barnabas. They went to Lystra, Paul was stoned to death. They went to Derbe, nothing significant happens as, as far as, uh, they preach the gospel, that's significant, but no opposition. That is recorded. They preach the gospel, and then they proceed to go back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and the Bible gives us a summary of what they did. They preached the gospel, and they taught many. They confirmed the souls of the disciples. They exhorted them to continue in the faith. They ordained elders in every church. They prayed, and then finally they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. That's the work of God. Do you mean, Pastor, that the work of God is not... Uh, now, fill in the blank. Whatever you think a church is supposed to do. I think we're aware enough, there's enough churches in the era to know, well, look, this church does this over here, and this church does this over here. And I don't want to spend time maybe criticizing what all the other churches are doing, what I do want to focus on is what we're supposed to do. Because sometimes we might be just satisfied by criticizing what everybody else is doing while we may not be doing what God wants us to do. So Acts chapter 14 gives us a summary of God's work. And I would like to bring your attention again to verse 23 that I pointed out. They commended them to the Lord. They turned things over. They turned the churches over to the Lord and say, those now are now in God's care. Now I want you to think about that. They turned things over to God's care only when they had done all that they were supposed to do. I think we all know God will take care of the church. Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God will take care of his part, but we must do our part. And what is our part? I want to, I've uh, have an outline here for this text as I always typically do. And so let me give you here, as we proceed through this chapter of the outline, let me give you the main points and then we'll expound on those. First of all, as we look at our text, we see that Paul was undeterred, undeterred by persecution. Then as we proceed in our text, we see that Paul was unapologetic for his preaching of the gospel. And thirdly, we're going to see that Paul was unwavering in his purpose 
as to the work that he did. So first of all, let's look at our text and notice that he was undeterred by the persecution. In verse 19 and 20, we have really the another martyr in the church. The first one that we know of was Stephen when he was stoned in Acts chapter 7. We know that Paul's conversion happened in Acts chapter 9, but here we see uh, the martyrdom of Paul who is stoned to death. And yet, the amazing words is that the next day after he was left for dead, the next day he goes on to Derby to preach the gospel. Now by show of hands, is there anybody this morning you would say, well, Pastor, the other day I was preaching the gospel or trying to witness to somebody and they brought a crowd against me and they stoned me to death. Or they stoned me and I nearly escaped. Anybody would raise your hand and say, that, that's me, that just happened to me. Okay, no, it didn't happen to you. Now that's my daughter. <laughs> Put your hand down. <laughs> I don't think that we are in that environment Although there are people who go through persecution, that we are in this environment where Paul was, but it is evident here that he was undeterred by the persecution. And so if there is any, any measure of opposition, it is not to the degree that the Apostle Paul faced. Could we admit that? So... With that in mind, we can measure here both Paul's opposition, but also at the same time, Paul's commitment to the work of God and to preaching the gospel. Notice, first of all, the measure of the opposition. When we read in verse 19, we have this summary. There came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, notice, who persuaded the people. Now, we see here that the opposition was persuasive. Now, I think that we will all agree that Paul, when he preached the gospel, he did so in the power of God. He writes about this, that God was with him. We know that people were converted to Christ by the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. But here, as those Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, the Bible says they persuaded the people against Paul and Barnabas. The word persuaded here means to convince to cause people to obey them, to cause people to agree with them. Now, isn't it interesting here that the people in Lystra, remember, they had just declared Barnabas and Paul as Jupiter and Mercurius. They had just declared them to be gods, to be the um, human representation of those Greek gods. Jupiter was, the, was Zeus, the highest Greek God. Uh, Mercurius was the one, I guess you could say, the, the guy, the God who spoke and who uh, spoke on behalf of Zeus, I guess you could say. And here we find here that they had just claimed them to be God, but then when the Jews show up from Antioch and Iconium, they are able to persuade the people to turn eventually the people against Paul and Barnabas from a moment they were saying they're gods to the next moment they're going to stone him and leave them for dead. The word here describes how basically the Jews brought about a change of mind by winning the people over to stand with them as the Jews and to stand against the apostles. And so here it is, the opposition against Paul was persuasive. 
The people were convinced, and by the way, they were so convincing in their arguments, in their presentation, in uh, their speech, that the end of the road is that these same people that are going to be convinced are going to stone Paul and, Bar uh, Paul and leave him for dead. Now why, why do I say that? I, I say that to, to say this, is that the opposition against the gospel is very persuasive. There are many people who are persuaded that this book is not God's book. There are many people, even within the religious uh, crowd, who are not convinced, they're not persuaded, or they're persuaded otherwise that Jesus Christ is not the only way. He is not the truth and not the life. There are many people who believe that their good works are going to give them eternal life. And so here we see that the opposition against the gospel was very persuasive. And so let's not think here that the opposition against us today might not be persuasive. There are many people who are intellectually gifted, who have the ability to communicate and to persuade people against the gospel of Christ. We see the measure of the opposition. The opposition were persuasive, but also the opposition was passionate. Do you notice here that the Bible says that there came Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now, they did not have cars then, or planes, or Uber and Lyft. Most of the time they walked or they uh, rode on a donkey, and so it was a, a small journey. Can you think about the level of passion it took for these people to go from the city of Antioch and Iconium and to come down to Lystra? These people were passionate in their opposition. By the way, so opposition, uh, so uh, passionate that at the end of verse 19, they stoned Paul and drew him out of the city. Now, now think about how passionate this means that they were. Think about the measure of their passion. They traveled from far dis distances to oppose the gospel. And furthermore, they stoned a man to death. And the Bible says they drew him out of the city. Now, we might read those words, but think about what that means. Probably when Paul was out in public, whether he was preaching or not, we do not know. But the fact is, the people of the city, they stoned Paul. And the Bible says, supposing he had been dead. Uh, now, I, I believe that, I personally believe that he was dead. I, I believe that uh, Paul died... Uh, the, the way that they would stone people, it was not like they would grab little pebbles from the ground and then chuck them. They would often grab both hands, two hands, big, huge boulders and big rocks and stones, and often they would come, they would place somebody in an uh, uh, area where everybody could be over them, and they would throw those big boulders on people and often completely cover their bodies with stone. The Bible says here, if you notice, when they stoned Paul, they drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now, this is interesting here because this is not typical. There is kind of a, a merging of the Jewish practice of stoning with a, the pagan people who drew him out of the city. The word drew here literally means dragged. So, so understand, when Paul was completely buried by those stones and those boulders. They got his body out of that, and then they literally they did not carry his body outside of the city. 
they dragged his body outside of the city. Uh, and uh, could you see here, as the, and by the way, if they were violent enough to stone him to death, they were probably very violent in their dragging. Do you see the corpse of Paul just being dragged, hitting rocks here, and they're dragging his body, and then probably hoisting his body and throwing him out of the city? They are so disdained by the Apostle Paul. What do we see here? That the opposition was passionate. And by the way, there are people who are very passionate against the gospel. There are people who are very passionate against God, against God's Word, against anything, by the way, that he can even could be religious. There's passion against that. And so here we see the measure of the, the opposition. And so we should not be surprised today if the opposition against the gospel is either persuasive or passionate. But just because someone is persuasive and because someone is passionate does not mean that they are right. Just because somebody is zealous does not mean that they're right. We not only see the measure of his opposition, but we also see the measure of his commitment. In verse 20, the Bible says, Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now we read this, but I'm thinking here, think about the measure of Paul's commitment to preaching the gospel. He was just stoned for preaching the gospel. Well, what does he do now? He gets up. He goes back to Lysford. The next day he goes to Derby. And what does he do in Derby? He preaches the gospel. He's lost his mind. No. He's obeying the Lord. I, I want to see two things here as we think about the measure of Paul's commitment. First of all, he complained not in the face of adversity. Now, we may think here that this point is not mentioned in our text. It doesn't mention here that Paul did not complain. And I agree that it is not mentioned here. However, I believe it stands as the proof that Paul did not complain because God, in His faithful record in the Scriptures, is not hesitant to let us know when there is a negative response when people are found dealing with adversity. God tells us they complained. Therefore, here... The absence of such a negative response speaks of how much Paul, uh, uh, speaks of Paul's commitment to serve God. You see, God lets us know whenever some of his people are dealing with adversity and then they complain to God. But Paul doesn't do that here. There is no such record. And by the way, God would have told us, I'm sure, as he often did. When people are doubting or when people are complaining. And so here... He rises up and he goes into the city. Now, why do I say that? It's because here is maybe the logical argument. Isn't Paul serving God? Isn't Paul doing the work that the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them? Well, yes, he is doing the work. And yet, he was stoned and left for dead. But he doesn't complain. God, why, why would you... Bring me to this place to cause me to die. He could complain. But he does not. Now, why? Because he knows that this is God's call. You see, may we never find ourselves complaining about the adversities that, we may, that may come our way 
when we, when we are serving the Lord? You see, because our complaining may be evidence that we are not fully committed to the Lord's work as we should. Do you remember what God called Paul to? God told Ananias to go to Paul and to tell him what he had called him to. Remember what God says to Ananias? He says, say unto him, say to who? Paul, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, and that's what he has been doing, but it's not done, and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's calling. Ananias, I want you to go tell Paul that I'm going to call him to be a light to the Gentiles, to kings and to the children of Israel, so that he may suffer great things for my name's sake. That was part of God's calling. What? Adversity. So here it is. To complain about the adversity is to complain about God's work, God's will, and God's call. But Paul doesn't do that. Why? He's committed to God's work. We also see that he not only complained not in the face of adversity... But he continued in the face of adversity. The Bible says the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So after he was still left for dead, the disciples are uh, standing around him. He gets up. And by the way, when God heals, when, for example, Paul did a miracle of the man who was lame, the man who was impotent, those were complete healings. But do you remember when Paul talks about his suffering? He says that he came in weakness. He had the scars to show the suffering of Christ that he bore. You know what that means? That I believe God raised him up, but I don't think God gave him complete healing. As he did in sometimes other cases when people were healed. In other words, Paul would bear in his body the marks of the suffering of Christ. Think about that for just a moment. You're Paul and God used you to completely heal a man as if nothing had ever happened. And when you're stoned for dead and left for dead, you still bear the marks in your body of the suffering of Christ. We might say, well, poor Paul, what is he going to do? He's going to get up, go to Lystra, get a good night's sleep, and then he's going to go to Derby and preach the gospel in Derby. He continued in the face of adversity. So here is what we learn. Let us not complain when we serve God, when we are met with adversity, and let's just continue. Continue to serve God. So we see that he was undeterred by the persecution, but as we continue our text, we see that he was unapologetic in his preaching. So, he goes from Lystra to Derby, and so because he was stoned for dead, when he gets to Derby, he's going to try to soften the message. He's going to try to maybe adapt a little bit so that he doesn't get stoned again. No, no, that's not what, what happens. Do you know, see what happens? So, here is the text. Howbeit, uh, uh, verse 21, well, verse 20 says, he departed uh, with Barnabas to Derby. Verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And so here, we see that he was unapologetic in his preaching. Notice, he 
preached the gospel to the city and then went back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And so here, think about it. When we read that expression, we may just read it and not think much of it, but they had preached the gospel to that city. There's two questions I have. Number one, what is the gospel? And number two, who needs to hear the gospel? Okay, now, the day before, he was stoned and left for dead. The next day, he gets up and goes to the city of Derby and preaches the gospel to that city. Two questions. What is the gospel? What is it? What is the message that would cause a man to be stoned to death and the next day to get up and to preach the same message? What is that gospel that would push a man to do that? And who is it for? Well, the Bible says, by the way, we read through chapter 13 and 14, they preached the gospel, they preached the gospel, they preached the gospel, they preached the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? We don't have to wonder. The Bible defines us, defines the gospel for us. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he said this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you. Okay, what's the gospel? Which also I have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. And Paul says, I've declared to you the gospel. This is where we stand. By this gospel we are saved. And that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He rose again. Uh, In Romans 1, He wrote to the church at Rome and He says in Romans 1.14, He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's the gospel that we declare and that we proclaim. If you notice with me in Acts chapter 14, just go back here to chapter 13. Acts 13, you remember what Paul was preaching as he was preaching the gospel. Notice Acts 13 verse 38. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, he's been talking about Jesus, is preached unto you, here it is, the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe, here it is, are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And he's talking to the Jew who observed the law of Moses, and he says, I'm preaching to you Jesus Christ so that you can receive the forgiveness of sin, and it is by this man, Jesus Christ, that you are justified. It is by this man that you are made righteous. It is by this man that you are declared holy. It is not because of the law of Moses. It is by Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
There is one God and one mediator between God and men. It's the man, Christ Jesus. There is salvation in none other. Turn with me once more or to another passage to Galatians chapter 2. Paul is troubled by the church of Galatia because they have been removed from preaching the gospel. And in uh, Galatians chapter 2, notice with me in verse 15. Galatians 2.15, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Righteousness does not come by the law. Righteousness comes by Christ. Imputed righteousness. The Bible says, For God hath made him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We do not attain righteousness. We are given righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died for our sins. He was our substitute. He took our place on the cross of Calvary. And when the sinner recognizes his sinfulness and his inability to keep the law and to be perfect, he turns to Christ and looks to Christ who Himself is sufficient. And all who come to the cross will have all the handwriting of ordinances against them blotted out taken out of the way. Why? Because they were nailed to the cross. That's the gospel. Jesus will save you. And so that's the first question. What is the gospel? But then the second question is, who needs to hear? Notice the statement in Acts chapter 14. They had preached the gospel to that what? City. The preaching of the gospel was to the whole city. Was it not? Was Paul selective in who he preached the gospel to? No, he was not. Now think for just a moment here how stirring it is for us to think of, well, who is it that needs to hear the gospel? Well, here Paul, when he went, he preached. By the way, that's the work of God that he fulfilled. It's not that everybody got saved but that he made sure that the whole city had heard the gospel. You see, that means, it's very simple, the whole city, every man, every woman, every child, heard the gospel. So how did he do it? 
Well, back then, they lived a little different than we do. Many people were out in the marketplace. They did not spend most of their time in their homes. They spent most of the time out and about. And often, when a man just began to preach, often crowds would gather around. And pretty much as we saw in Antioch and also in uh, Iconium and Lystra, a, a big crowd. Uh, remember, in Antioch, almost the whole city came together to hear the preaching of Paul. Well, pastor, things don't happen like that today. They don't, but let's think about it for just a moment. What is our mission? Who is it that needs to hear the gospel in this area? There's over 70,000 people who live in the city of Wilmington, the city proper. Newcastle County has a population of over half a million people. Newcastle County. The majority of which live within a seven-mile radius of this church. That's the map right there in the back. What is the gospel? It's the answer in Christ. Who needs to hear? Everybody. Do you believe that? Everybody needs to hear the gospel? So what are we doing? The end of the narrative in Acts chapter 14 is what? They fulfilled the work that God called them to do. You see, us fulfilling God's work is not necessarily that everybody in the city is going to believe, but that we have to do our best to make sure that everybody hears. Boy, that's convicting, is it not? What is it that we must do make sure that we do that there's one more thing we find in our text and that is he was unwavering in his purpose here is a summary statement of what they did so they preached the gospel to the city in Derby. then they went back to Lystra where he had been stoned left for dead then they went to Iconium and then they went to Antioch and so the Bible gives us where they went chronologically and then it gives us a statement uh, from verse, um, oh, I'm in Acts 7. Notice in Acts 14. So from verses 22 through 23, two verses, verse 22 and 23, here's what they did in every city. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Here, I'll give you the list and then we'll talk a little bit about them. Number one, they confirmed the souls of the disciples. Number two, they exhorted them to continue in the faith and that they much, must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Number three, they ordained elders in every church. Number four, they prayed with fasting. And number five, they commended them to the Lord. So, if we go back to what happened in Derby, we know that all those cities they go back through, they had first preached the gospel and taught many. So this is God's work. You ready? This is God's work according to the Bible. At the end of the narrative, God says they fulfilled the work. So this is God's work. Preaching the gospel, teaching many, confirming them to continue in the faith, exhorting them, or confirming the souls, exhorting them to continue in the faith, ordained elders in every church, Pray with fasting and then commending to the Lord. Now, the summary statement of this, what is this? That's church planting. 
churches were established as a result of Paul's missionary journeys. The establishment of churches. We think about confirming what is that. So we assume we have the gospel preaching and then the teaching of the people. But then as they go back, now by the way, obviously there was persecution in those cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So what did they do in the face of persecution? They confirmed the souls of the disciples. The word confirm here means to support further. It means to establish or to strengthen by making the people's minds and hearts firm. Now they're going to need that. Why? Well, they just toned Paul in Lystra. And so to confirm means they're probably going to instruct them. You see, the Word of God, we know the Word of God does indeed work to bring about our soul's salvation. But the Word of God also works to strengthen the soul. And so here he's confirming, they're confirming the believers. You see, these believers needed further instruction in the Word of the Lord. And Paul and Barnabas are going to do just that. By the way, that's what they did, remember, in the church in Antioch in Syria, when the people had gathered, assembled themselves together, the believers in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas up, and then Barnabas uh, brought Paul into the church of Antioch, and then they taught the people for, 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 for a long time, and so the people had, souls had been confirmed, they had been strengthened. Why? Because if we just get saved, and that's all the word that we know, and that's the extent of our knowledge of the Scriptures, there's going to be many battles throughout life. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be adversities. And so we need God's help and further instruction in the Word of God that goes beyond our knowledge of the Gospel. And we all need that. He then, they exhorted them to continue in the faith. Uh, the word exhort literally means to call near. So, I believe here that when Paul is about to leave and go back to the church that sent him from, when he goes back to Lystra, Iconium, and Lystra, after he taught the people, confirmed their souls, he exhorts them to continue in the faith. You know what he basically is saying is, you have to come near together. You have to faithfully assemble yourselves, be around God's word, encourage one another. The word exhort means to build up. And we are built up when we assemble ourselves together. And he says and that we must through much tribulation to the, to the, enter into the kingdom of God. And now he's not talking about, well, uh, it's only through tribulation that you are saved. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, this uh, simply means that until Jesus Christ comes and makes things right and his kingdom is ushered into the world, there's going to be tribulation for God's people. There's going to be difficulties for God's people. And that's, that describes the life of God's people. And so we have to assemble ourselves. That's why Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching, call God's people near. See, Pastor, look at all the things that are happening. We see the signs of the time. Well, don't quit. It's the time. There is no better time. The meeting of God's people have to be, has to be more now than it's ever been. That's why the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as those manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. You see, as we see the day approaching, what happens is people are quitting church. While there needs to be more of it. Not less of it. More of it, as we see the day of the Lord come near. 
what's been the trend of churches. I don't want to be critical, but we know it's less meetings. This is not meet at all. As a matter of fact, we could just do our business online. We don't have to assemble ourselves. We are the church, right? We're, we're, wherever we are, that's where the church is. That's the misunderstanding of the definition of the church. The word church means a called out assembly. It's the assembling of God's people. And so this congregation is absolutely paramount. And that's what Paul did. He exhorted them to continue in the faith. And you do that by assembling yourself. So confirm, exhort, and then he ordained them elders in every church. Now, the word ordain here means basically to stretch the hand, to select to a point. So it could be, we know sometimes that you lay, they lay hands on them. But I think here is perhaps the believers that are assembled together, they basically voted for the leadership of the church, and Paul and Barnabas guided in that. They ordained elders in every church. The word elder generally references someone who is aged or or an older person. In this case, it refers to an office. He ordained them elders in every church, which denotes that those who were ordained were simply more experienced and therefore chosen to preside over and instruct other believers in the church. You see, the elders were appointed in every church, and we see this pattern continuing even when Paul instructed Titus. He told Titus to do the same thing. Uh, Later, if you turn a few pages to Acts chapter 20, Acts 20, notice with me verse 17. The Bible says here, well, uh, Paul gathers the elders, and uh, let's go down to verse 28. Acts 20, 28. So Paul gathers the elders of the church, and this is what he tells them. So this is the role of the elders. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, these are the elders of Ephesus that he gathered together. And notice here, the work of the elder is threefold. Number one, oversee. Take the oversight. So oversee, that's where we get the word bishop. One who takes the oversight. So an elder is a bishop, in the sense. He takes the oversight. Oversee the church of God. And then he says, feed. Well, it's not physical food. It's spiritual food. Instruct people in God's word. And then, he talks about wolves, grievous wolves coming in the church. It's to protect so the role of the elder is what? When the Bible says in early on in Acts 14, ordained elders in every church, he ordained them to do what? They were chosen to do what? To take oversight of those new churches, to spiritually feed those new churches, and to protect those new churches. Why? Well, because Paul and Barnabas would not be there anymore. They were the ones who were taking the oversight. They were the ones feeding, and they were the ones protecting. And now they're passing that along to elders. Then, there's two more things. They prayed. They had prayed. They prayed with fasting. And so before their departure, they had a time of prayer. And I know we've emphasized this, and we're trying to have more of those times in our church, more time to pray. We need to be praying more. At least that's what we find throughout the book of Acts. Have we not seen that all throughout the book of Acts? That the church prayed? This, like, that's what they did? Now, I'm grateful for picnics and outings and all those things, but 
if that results to the absence or to the waning of a ministry of prayer, then we're in the wrong place. And then, lastly, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. The word commended means to place alongside, to present, to commit, to put forth, to set before. Paul and Barnabas would no longer be with them in presence. They're leaving. They're going back to Antioch in Syria. And so believers have been saved in each one. A church now has been established with leadership involved. And so the word commended here, he commended these new churches comprised of believers to the Lord's care and protection. So Paul is, I'm not going to be with you anymore. And so it's like Paul who took that responsibility. He says, all right, we've done all that we can do. Now we have to turn this over to God. And by the way, God will take care of his church. But Paul turns it over. He says, God, you, you take care of this because I'm leaving and I, 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 can't, I can't take care of this. That's the work of God. So we have to ask ourselves here. Within God's work that Paul and Barnabas were supposed to do. I've called them to do this work. This is what they did. They preached the gospel to everybody. They taught those who believed. They confirmed their souls. They exhorted them to continue in the faith. They ordained elders in every church. They prayed and they commended them to the Lord. Well, that's rather simple, isn't it? It is simple. And God, at the end of the dream, we'll look at next week, He's going to say, they fulfilled the work. Now, certainly we are an established church, but what were these churches supposed to do when established? The same thing. The work of God had not changed. So, these churches after Paul had done those things, we're supposed to continue to do what? Oh, well, this is what Paul did. So, let's preach the gospel, teach converts, confirm their souls, exhort them to continue in the faith. Let's uh, appoint leaders in the church, and certainly that would be a continual thing in the churches. And uh, let's go on to, um, uh, to, to continue in a ministry of prayer and to do so and putting things in the care of God. You know, that, that's, that was helpful to me because I was thinking, well, we're praying for a church building. Well, God's got that taken care of. We turn it over to God. Now, we do all we can, but turn over to God. God, God. God knows. God will take care of the church. Let's not threat to think, well, because God is not blessing us with a building that we, we can't advance, we can still advance and do God's work. So, oh, may the Lord help us. Let's pray.